Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, into LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. How's it going, everyone? Our guest for today is James Kandasamy, who is a principal at Achieve Investment Group, which is a multifamily operator and investor with a focus in Texas, owns about 1,700 units. He's also the author of Passive Investing in Commercial Real Estate, Insider Secrets to Achieve Financial Independence, and we will link to that in the show notes page. James, how are you doing today? Hey, Hunter. I'm very happy to be in your show. Thanks for having me here. Happy to do it and definitely interested to learn more about your background, but also want to learn a lot about this book that you wrote because I think a lot of our listeners in particular are going to be interested in it. But before we jump into all that, let's just get a little framework on which this massive 1,700-unit empire has been built. <laughs> Tell us a bit about your background you know, prior to getting into real estate and then how you segued into the real estate business. Sure. So absolutely. So I'm an electrical engineer, has been on W2 job for 22 years before, you know, jumping full-time into real estate. Uh, electrical engineer, I have an MBA. Also, I'm a CCIM. Uh, CCIM, for those who doesn't know, it's considered the black belt in commercial real estate. And there's very few people have it uh, right now. And, and I'm one of the odd uh, investors who have CCIM. Most of the time, CCIM is held by a lot of big brokers out there who's doing big deals. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my background. Cool. And when did you start to realize that, I guess, the engineer route wasn't going to satisfy all your, your financial goals and segue into that position as an operator? <laughs> sure, sure. Absolutely. So I think the aha moment came to me when uh, my, in my, one of my W2 jobs when my boss came down and sit in front of me. I mean, I came from, I'm originally from Malaysia. And in Malaysia, like when I studied my electrical engineering, it's only cost me like 5,000 bucks, you know, for four years degree. That's it. When I came to the US, like uh, in 2010, you know, I, I switched job uh, after my first job. I switched job in 2007 or 2005, I can't remember. And my second company boss came and sit down to me, James, you're going to be working here for some time. Uh, you know, we have stocks and uh, he said, you're going to make a lot of money for your college education for your kids. I have three kids. And when I listened to that, I said, why? What do you mean? Why college is uh, such a big thing? He said, well, college in the US is like going to cost you like two to 300,000. I said, wow, really? Okay, that was the day where I realized, oh my God, I can't just work as a W2 employee. Right? Even though I'm, wow. I'm, a, I'm a senior manager, I, I mean, I paid well, but you know, there's just no savings for us, right? I mean, I didn't have any IRA, no 401k. I'm starting fresh in the US. And I just have, I had like $80,000 coming to the US. And I you know out of that, we bought a house when we came. Within two weeks in the in US, we bought a house and all that money goes to the house. I absolutely know I have to do something else. And that was the aha moment, say that I have to do some other business. And I started doing a lot of different businesses. Like I tried to do a website. 
is trying to do uh, educational business and, and nothing really sticks to me. And, and I try to play the stock market as well, the biggest puzzle out there, right? And try to solve that, thinking that, hey, here, I'm an engineer, I'm analytical enough, you know, let's buy all this, you know, candlestick technical analysis of stock and try to solve it. And, you know, every time I go into stock, I lose money. And, uh, you know, I realize that, you know, I'm just not well suited for stock. And one day I read an article where they said, the article clearly said, this is very a uh, major publication where they say 98% of individual investors will never make money in stock market because <laughs> it plays with fear and uh, greed and it plays with a lot of emotion, right? So you can, you can do whatever technical analysis you want, but you know it's very hard for individual investors to really make money, right? Because all the big guys, they are playing the game, <laughs> right? So, yeah. so I quit on stock and uh, I went into real estate because I heard someone, my colleague uh, is doing a rental real estate and I thought that was interesting. You know, you can make like 9% average uh, cash flow on a house. So that was interesting for me. Wow, that's actually really powerful. I want to pause on that topic because sure. this is something that's come up a lot in the show that we haven't really addressed directly. Uh-huh. You can be successful in basically any sector, okay? Like if you're in the top 1% uh-huh. of all library owners or whatever, used book sales, anything, you can be wealthy. You can be a multimillionaire. You can create generational wealth for yourself. The thing about real estate is that you don't have to be in the top 0.01% in order to achieve excellent things in the sector from a financial standpoint. Like you mentioned the stock market, for example. Yeah, you're an engineer. You're a savvy individual. You realize, look, if I dedicate my time, energy, and expertise towards something, I will be very good at that thing. The challenge, though, is in the stock market, you have to be in the top 2% to make money at all. That's pretty remarkable. I mean, it is not the case in real estate. Now, We'll segue into that, but I just wanted to mention that because I think it's very powerful where you can be an average real estate entrepreneur, real estate investor, and do quite well if you protect yourself to the downside, but it's not the case in all sectors of the economy. We're very fortunate to work in this very lucrative, scalable, and to a certain extent, uh, the potential for passive income, which we'll talk about as well, is also a factor. So you realize the stock market's not the way to go. You start to see your friend making money in rental income. What was the first deal that you did back then? So it was single family homes, right? So okay. my first deal was a single family house where we bought and you know we make a modest cash and cash like nine to ten percent. Uh, and I learned some tricks in a single family home called double closing, where you can buy and you do two loans consecutively. And you can make like, you know, 50 to 60% or even infinite return. So I started buying uh, single family houses starting in 2013. And for the next two years, 2013, 2015, we bought almost like 13 houses. 11 of it was rental. And in fact, six out of 11 were free. Basically, we didn't put any money down on it. And that's what we can accomplish with something called a double closing uh, in single family home. And um, yeah, that's where I got started with my single family houses and moved on to multifamily using the equity from the single family houses. Okay, got it. So your first deal is actually financed through your own equity. And then when did you start syndicating and bringing in other passive investors? Yeah, so when I want to move to multifamily is when I, I realized that, okay, so now single family is, is a lot of deals out there, but 
it's not scalable, right? And I said, okay, now I don't do multifamily, multifamily, and I figured out, okay, the only way to do multifamily is, you know, something called syndication, right? Where you're able to pull a group of people's money and invest, who they invest passively and we become the active investor. That was in 2015 where I bought my first 45 units apartment where I first syndicated with uh, four other investors. Okay, got it. And let's talk about that investment thesis at the time, where were you focused? Was it still in Texas? And then compare that to what your investment thesis is today and kind of some of the lessons learned in between then and now. So yeah, I mean, first deal was 45 units. We made really good money. We almost cashed out 117% within 12 months and (laughs) paid all our investors. And all our investors had a free building for the next four years. And we recently sold that first 45 units apartment for almost 332% return. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, and, and let me let me clarify one thing. Out of 332%, 100% of it is just market appreciation. Right. So if you have bought any deals in the past, uh, after 2012 and up to 2019, uh, so you would have made at least 100% without doing anything on any asset class. Or not any asset class, any multifamily asset class, as long as it's managed correctly. Right. So the other 200% is what I call a sweat equity. So value add is what I believe is the right way to go in commercial. Otherwise, there's no reason to do commercial real estate. But you have to find the right operator. So coming back to your questions, how do I see things are different, right? I mean, my last purchase was almost 346 units. It's a $30 million deal. And my first purchase was 45. And from 45 to 346, my perspective has uh, almost stayed the same in terms of buying off-market directly from the sellers. Will You'll get the best return. You can still definitely buy from brokers, but you want to avoid buying brokers by going through the, you know, the bidding process. Whenever we do go through a bidding process, you're basically buying a normal deal, right? So when you buy a normal deal, you are basically banging on market appreciation because everybody is going to be paying high prices if you're buying a normal deal. So my perspective has always been like, you know, buy off-market deal, even through brokers or direct from sellers, you know, make sure there's a value-add component to it and make sure you have both on the cash flow and also on the back-end equity as well. So both, you know, both can play a good role in terms of finding a good uh, risk versus return uh, balance in terms of uh, reward. And was that first deal that you did, is that similar to the, obviously you mentioned the size, but in terms of the markets, for example, or the the value add component, is that similar to your current focus as well? Yes, with one change, one difference, right? So the, yeah, similar focus, we we have been buying in Austin and San Antonio, right? We buy value add and all that. But one thing that I I changed from my day one of buying, I mean, I started buying multifamily apartment in 2000. 15, but in 2018, I've moved all my short-term loans into long-term loans because I know the market is going crazy. You know, we have too long into this uh, expansion cycle and I move all of it to long-term loans, Fannie and Freddie Mac loans. And now I'm so happy because now in COVID, it's all non-recourse loan and I can sleep better. So that's one big change that I've done from day one of buying the first 45 minutes to deals that I bought after 2018. I've moved all into long-term loans. Okay. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I've talked so many times in the podcast about how the lending is such an important piece of the capital stack. And I think that if you can lock in that long-term financing, especially given where interest rates are, it's uh, very, very compelling and allow you to sleep at night. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of people were still doing buying deals in 2019 using bridge loans, right? I mean, bridge loans, deals are easy to do, right? I mean, money is easy to raise in 2019, 
2020, early 2020, right? If you get a bridge loan, you are done, right? You can buy the most expensive deal out there, and but you get the highest leverage too. You get like 80% leverage. And with all the rehab, you probably go to 90% leverage, right? So and any anybody out there can do it. And there was a lot of sponsors were doing it. But we have made a conscious decision after 2018 saying that we're only going to go for long-term loans, Fannie and Freddie. You know, we're not going to do as many deals as we want, but that's okay. At least uh, I know my investors, uh, you know, wealth and money is going to be preserved. Uh, you know, it's much, much lower risk compared to you know, doing a bridge loan. Yeah, I agree with you. And sometimes you can be allured by the beginning of your career. You're thinking, holy cow, this is going to be so incredible. Just got to do this for like one decade and... And we get to get a new house, you know, and stuff like that. And the reality is that can be the case if you time it correctly. But sometimes that timing has completely nothing to do with your understanding of the world or economics or anything, or even supply and demand, as we've seen recently with the lockdowns associated with COVID. Nobody could have predicted something so ahistoric as these economic lockdowns. So if your business model fails because of it, yes, you can say, well, who could have predicted it? But the reality is if you're taking short-term financing, you're incurring a risk, the likes of which is difficult to account for when there are unexpected things that can always take place. In fact, every major correction has been to someone wildly unpredictable. Now, uh, there's variations in that, but it's just the reality. You have to be prepared for the unexpected. Yeah, it's just so interesting, right? I mean, if you look at 2019, you know, everybody was crazily buying all asset class. And I was reading this book by Howard Marks. Uh, you know, Howard Marks, if you do not know, Warren Buffett reads his uh, first email from Howard Marks. Every, every time Warren Buffett said, if I get an email from Howard Marks, I'm going to read it first because he write really good memos about risk versus reward and mastering market cycle and all that. And he did clearly say that people will be thinking in the peak cycle that this will never end, right? Remember in 2019, people said, maybe we are like Australia, we'll be like 29 years of expansion cycle, right? So mm. he said, that's exactly as what people say. There's so much of capital out there, so much of easiness to get leverage, to get debt. And that's what exactly happened. And you know, look at now, most of the lenders, except for Fannie and Freddie and everybody else is gone. That's yeah. exactly as what he says in the book. There's so many straightforward somewhat simplistic concepts in Howard Marks's book, especially Mastering the Market Cycle. I mean, one thing that really stuck out to me is the more significant the run-up, the more significant the crash nine times out of 10. Mm -hmm. That statement that I just said right there is so powerful. And yet people from an emotional standpoint can avoid it for years and years and years. They can say this time is different. They can say, well, that was 20 years ago. They can say, no, now the Federal Reserve controls everything. But no, 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 no. Just understand that reality and understand who it's coming from and that they know what they're talking about and just listen to that person because they know what they're talking about. All right. So when you're getting a deal now, things have Mm -hmm. changed a little bit. You like the long-term debt. You want to go the agency debt route. Mm -hmm. What are some of the metrics that you look at? I know that you have a lot of access to deals. So there's got to be some things that you can throw 50% or 90% in the trash very quickly so that you can dive deeper into those deals that really make a lot of sense. What are some of those metrics that right now you're finding really compelling or instantly trash worthy? Uh, So for me, it's very simple. Any deal that comes through an email from broker is trashed, (laughs) right? I don't even look at it, right? So 98% of the deals that come to me get trashed. It's not even one third. Sure. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind, uh, for in 2019, we bought like, uh, I mean, 2018, 2019, we bought like three deals and I only underwritten like 
six till uh, that two years, right? Because, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, we don't really, we are not like some people who like sitting down and underwriting every single deal and putting offers. Because I know most of the deals, once it gets known by everyone else, it's just a normal deal. And I'm not here to buy normal deals because I'm a person who really like to find good value. I mean, I want to feel good doing a project because we are vertically integrated company. We controls everything. We control asset management, we control property management, we raise the money ourselves. We had a single GP in our company. So we want to feel good executing the whole entire plan. And for me, it's very, very important to have that buffer when I buy. So when I buy, this is a criteria I look for. I look for day zero of purchase. You should already have potential upside even without looking at any market appreciation. So, you know, some people put their 3% rent growth or 2% rent growth in year one. We don't do that. We, our year zero is Zero rent growth, nothing. Hmm. And even just by year zero, we need to have at least 1% to 1.5% of cap rate increase just by my own work, nothing else. If the world didn't change, if my property is in a small uh, coconut shelf, it can appreciate just by my work where I can go and put in money, put in rehab money or put in my sweat equity or fix up the management and we can increase the cap rate by 1% to 1.5%. So I don't mind buying a deal at a market cap rate. So let's say, for example, in central Texas, it's like 5% cap rate, right? Day zero, I'm buying. But just because I'm going and rehabbing it, just I'm increasing the rent or I'm fixing up the management and reducing expenses, I am basically increasing that 5% to at least like, you know, 6.5 or 7% cap rate in the next two years. That's actually really compelling. And one of the things I want to highlight is that you don't do what so many firms do, which is just underwrite, 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 trying to find through volume. Walk us through how you are able to identify or source those deals. They're not coming from brokers. Where are they coming from? Well, out of my nine deals, three deals came directly from sellers. So we do a lot of seller uh, marketing, direct off-market, especially when I got started. You know, It's very hard to get a good deal, especially when you're a newbie, right? I mean, any newbie or any out-of-state investors when they go to another state and buy, they usually don't get good deal. They get the deals that none of the local guys want to buy, right? So I always wonder when someone from out of state coming and buying in Texas and that's their first deal, that means that they're buying a deal which is probably normal or overpay a bit, which is okay because hopefully the market can help them, but we don't do that, right? So three deals we bought directly from sellers, which is a handshake direct to the sellers. There's no brokers in between, right? And out of my nine deals, three is from, from sellers. One of it is through a best and final process. That's only one because you know I know I'm going to get that deal and I had a really good relationship with the broker. The rest of it came directly from brokers, but it's an off-market without bidding, right? So like broker called me and say, James, this is a deal that I think you should do. And within three seconds of the broker on the call, I will know whether he's whether they are like giving me a true deal or not. And they know themselves because usually experienced underwriters, you know, we know how to underwrite very quickly in our, in our, in our mind, whether this is the right rent, this is the right rental rate, this is how much is the square footage of a unit. Mm-hmm. We already get the data that it's a deal that we should go detail or not. And usually brokers call us because they know if you come to us, it'll get closed. So they don't really come with very high price expectation. This is the right price. This is a price for you. You want it or not. This is a deal in front of you, another deal, right? Which makes we are the best buyer, right? I mean, because you know, it's just we know the local market very well. So being a good closer, being a good buyer, having good relationship with brokers do help in for them to get deals that is off market and they want to make a quick money on their commission and still be fair to the sellers. That's the line of where we get our deals. Yeah. It's pretty remarkable how you can listen to 
hundreds of podcasts. You can get your CCIM. You can get your MBA. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's not going to help you unless you simply do this one thing. Guys, ready? Do what you say you're going to do. Absolutely. And it's so powerful. It is so powerful because your competitors aren't. As wild as that seems, you can simply get incredible relationships by just delivering every single time. Very, very powerful concept. Yeah. So I want to transition into the topic about your book, because obviously this is one of the reasons we kind of were introduced to each other is I found out about your book and I wrote one about the capital raising side. You had written one about the passive investing side, which I am obviously I'm thinking about doing all the time, but it's first of all, congratulations for writing it because I know (laughs) what that means you did and what your whole family had to go through as you finished that. It's really hard to write a book. (laughs) I'm sure you know what, I mean, to write a real book, right? I mean, you can write a marketing book where you can pay someone and write it and it probably doesn't sell but you can always call yourself as an author but mm. but the books I mean this book the one I wrote is you know, we already sold like 2,000 copies of it and we are like almost one year in it and that's a real book that people are reading right so I completely relate to that because that's definitely the way that I wrote the book so walk us through some of the most important key takeaways of your book which is about passively investing in commercial real estate mm-hmm Sure, sure. I want to dial back one level low. And why did I write the book? I'm a sponsor, I'm a syndicator, and I felt like I have to write a book for passive investors because, you know, usually like, as I was telling you all the story that how hard is it to find a really, really good deal? It's a lot of hard work, right? And I was doing my first two deals and I realized my, you know, I had an investor, I had a few investors who had like million dollars in liquidity and they said, and they invest like 100,000 or 200,000 into my deal, but they say it's a really good deal. And my, by the time I go into my third deal, they said they're already done investing all their $1 million in uh, liquidity. I said, why? Why you didn't wait for my next deal? They said, oh, I, whatever deal come in front of me, I just invest. So I realized that at that point of time, people thought that all deals are the same. Real estate syndication is a commodity. You know, I can just close my eye, whatever deal comes in, I want to invest as quickly as possible. So I realized that huh, there's not much of education out there on how to analyze deals for passive investors, right? how to select deals for passive investors. Passive investors, most of the time, since they're passive and they're not well-educated on real estate, I mean, there's a lot of education for stocks. You can just Google, there's so many people doing education for stocks, right? but there's not much of, there's no real material for passive investors unless you go to this you know some some uh, groups and pay a lot of money as well and you probably get some of it but still not they don't get the real juice of the cheese of how to really look at you know an investment deal in front of them and how to choose it so i wrote the book to make sure that i'm able to get you know some smart passive investors who are able to select really really good deals when it comes to them so out of 10 they can probably select like two or three which they really like right so that's the reason i wrote the book and coming back to the key points of the book some of the key points is there's ways for you to get started in this business there's a lot of free ways and there's a lot of you know paid ways there's a lot of uh, ways that you can get started like meetup meetup.com bigger pockets and i just want to make sure that all passive investors are not cocooned into the herd mentality, right? You know a few people who have invested in it and you just talk to them and they think whatever they say is what the whole world does, right? That's not true, right? Passive investing in real estate is an art and science, right? So I want to introduce them to that so that they get the bigger picture on, hey, there's a lot more people out there with different level of knowledge, right? So that's one thing I wrote in that book. So, you know, you go out and go and explore all the knowledge. You don't have to go and invest everywhere, but at least go and understand different, different aspects of real estate investing. Second is, you know, the real estate investing, there's different degree of returns and risk, 
which need to map to your own investment cycle degree and risk i mean a young person who wants who wants to multiply its equity might be want to do a deep value add deal so you need to look for a sponsor or syndicator who specializes in deep value add people who are more older who are more on the late part of their investment cycle who just want cash flow they have to look for a sponsor and a deal which focuses a lot on cash flow kind of thing lower risk and more cash flow whereas deep value add or value add you know has higher risk but more return right so these are the things that people really don't talk about anywhere else so i wrote that book to you know say you have to really map your uh, investment cycle with what is the deal being put on front of you and i also talked about some of the metrics right so you know what is the irr how is it being measured why is it different why you should look at irr why you should look at cash and cash why you should look at equity multiple and combinational of that how do you you know really and analyze the deals that you want to invest right because some of these terms can be complicated for new passive investors coming into the real estate investment space and you'll be surprised even a lot of sponsors syndicators doesn't know what is irr and how does it change as well right so after that you know i go into different sources of you know fund that they can put in they can put cash they can put solo 401k they can put ira and you know why why certain investment fund is beneficial for them and some are not beneficial for them at least for them to know pro and con right that's it's all about opening their eyes to uh, different uh, types of uh, information out there so they can make full use of it and uh, other than that i cover different asset classes i covered office i covered warehouse you know i covered multifamily and I, i also covered market cycle right which part of the market is the best time to invest right so yeah as i said i just want to give open up you know different ideas different information to passive investors so they can make the best decision when a deal comes to them rather than just take that million dollar that they have in the bank and you know spread it across 10 different uh, investment that comes in front of them right um yeah these are the things that i covered in the book So one of the things that I noticed when I wrote my book is mm-hmm. in the process of writing the book you really fully mature the own thoughts that you have in your head then once you release the book and start having conversations about different topics related to the content you again relearn a lot of concepts and learn a lot about something that you thought you were an expert in what were some of those things that you learned after writing the book and engaging in conversations similar to the one that we're having right now yeah that's a really good question i think if you have written a book you would know that question need to be asked right so you absolutely right there are some things which i was a big aha moment for me after i finished releasing the book and it didn't even happen immediately so like after one year of releasing the book yeah i did give really good information about the book but one thing that i was big thing that i really learned after writing the book is how the deals are being structured now right and risk versus reward right and uh, some of the way a deal can be analyzed and broken down mathematically right for example let me go through these three topics right one is called a deal profiling irr partitioning right so for example when someone say this deal is 20% irr so is that good or is that bad right no one knows about it for passive investors there's no information for them to know but if you do something called irr partitioning i i actually give a excel spreadsheet in in one of my uh, masterclass course which is i released after the book uh, using that irr partitioning you can split between cash flow and you can split the back end equity and cash flow is always paid higher value because that's more definite compared to the back end uh, equity upside right at sales because no one knows what's going to happen in 3 to 5 years when the sponsors projecting crazy exit cap rate or you know conservative no one knows what's going to happen what's the exit cap rate so splitting that cash flow and the exit cap rate gives you a good 
partitioning of the IRR. So if the IRR is more uh, made, let's say out of the 20%, if the 15% of IRR or 10% of IRR is made on the cash flow itself, that's a higher value deal. That's a much more uh, lower risk deal, higher return, lower risk, higher return, compared to a deal where the IRR you know, out of that 20%, 15% of it is made on the back end and 5% made on the cash flow. So remember I talked about how do you match you know, investors' uh, expectation in terms of uh, what do I expect from this deal? How can I change my investment cycle based on the deal? So using this IRR partitioning deal, you can basically make a really good decision on whether this is a, a lower risk deal or is it a higher risk deal, right? So that's one thing. So second thing that I learned is something called uh, how the deals are being structured, right? I mean, some deals, even though it's, you know, it's, it sounds the same, at a high level on the paper. Like for example, uh, when someone talks about, oh, I'm doing 80% profit split between the limited partners and 20% the GP is taking it. That sounds the same. And there's another guy talking the same thing. Oh, I'm doing 80-22, right? But there's a subtle difference between these two deals which can fundamentally change the entire investment risk, right? For example, on 80-20, when the operational cash flow is considered return on capital, which is how investment should work, right? You put 100,000, you're making money on top of that investment. Like, so you're making, let's say you're making 10,000 on top of that 100,000, you made a, a cash on cash of 10%, right? But fundamentally, that 80-20 uh, split can be changed to a higher risk deal when the second guy says that, oh, all your operational cash flow is considered return of capital. Right, so let's say you put hundred thousand, and now you're giving ten thousand back to the passive investor. That is not even a, a profit, right? Because now that ten thousand is a return of capital, right? So there are hundred thousand basis that reduced to ninety thousand, and the sponsor is paying ten thousand back to you. They don't even call it cash and cash because it's it's wrong to call it cash and cash. It's not a cash and cash. That's basically a return of cash, right? So that's basically what has happened is that's basically more like a loan throughout the operational cycle. And the 80-20 split happens on the back end at the sale. So what has happened is instead of getting cash flow throughout the five, let's say five-year horizon of investment on the return on capital, the sponsor have done an 80-20 return off capital. So basically what the sponsor have done is, yeah, it's 80-20, but throughout the operational phase of that investment, there's no money being made, right? Because it's basically they're returning back the same capital. So the, all the money is being made on the back end. So the back end is where the money is being made, which means all your risk, all your investment risk is on the back end, which is really, really high risk. Because as I said, in the first point is like, cash flow is always higher value compared to the back end upside, right? And if everybody's making money on the back end upside, you are basically investing on some risk that you do not know. And so, that's the easy way to convert an 80-20 profit split investment from a low risk to high risk. But no one talks about the structure in the detail. And there's a lot of sponsors doing that out there. And I think a lot of passive investors still doesn't know. I talked to a few of them who have invested like 5,000 units, 10,000 units. And when I told them, hey, this is what you're invested, they, they could have a sleepless night. right? And I'm sure a lot of your passive investors are going to go back and look at the company agreement, company operating agreement and see that, how is this structure being done. right? And and I was really surprised to see a lot of passive investors doesn't even read the company agreement. People who have invested millions of dollars because everybody just signed that legal document. So yeah, structure is very important. And I did a really good educational video on my passive investing uh, video series. The third thing I would say is, you know, you also want to see uh, whether the passive investors, when you are getting paid on a consistent basis, 
on day one on a value add deal, let's say you're getting an 8% consistent basis, I mean, it's very hard to get a consistent return from a real estate itself if you are just investing on a value add deal. Because value add deal, you know, especially when we buy deals, you know, there's a lot of things happening. There's a demographic shift happening. We're doing rehab. So, you know, we had, it's very difficult to get cash flow on day one. It takes like six months for us to really stabilize six to eight months and sometimes can go to a year. And But some some sponsors pay from day one. And how are they doing it? And I was always wondering, how are you doing day one, 8% cash flow? And it's very puzzling to me. And later I realized they basically over-race and just pay back the same amount of money, right? So I don't know whether that's legal or not, but I think the paperwork would have said that, you know, we can pay out of capital, out of investment. But as soon as the market goes up, all these different, different structures would not be exposed. Nobody really cares because end of the day, everybody makes money. But right now the market is not going up, right? Either it's flattening or it's going down. Right, so this is where all the structures, which is not very favorable for passive investors, are going to be exposed, and I think that's very important. Yeah, completely agree. I really liked your breakdown of that return on capital versus return of capital. It's something that we've talked a lot about on this show. One thing that we do see, which is quite common, is you know, let's say there's a preferred return, anything above the preferred return, is that count as a return of capital or a return on capital? And there's so many structures out there. Some can be totally favorable where, you know, 100% of everything goes to the investor. So they're trying to reduce the risk as much as possible. But you want to understand that when you're calculating your own income from that deal, you want to know, are you getting your own money back or is this actual operational income? Which is kind of a bit segue to the second or third point we mentioned, which is those you know development deals, for example, that start paying year one cash flow where you're like, hmm, there's no rental income from this vacant land as we're waiting for it to be entitled. How is this happening? And I agree, a lot of this has been able to go on in a very favorable market conditions, but will likely not be the case if things start to turn around economically. And we've talked to many attorneys on this program, but I think one thing that is necessary. If you're going to be dedicating the time to listen to these podcasts, such as this one, and learning about this very complicated world of commercial real estate, you should take the time to read the private placement memorandums. And you can learn seven or eight things that are really critical to pay attention to. So if you're really pressed for time, I'm not saying anybody do this, but we understand the reality of the situation. If you can just find you know, the reporting requirements, the distribution requirements, how calculation is made regarding the waterfall, whether or not the sponsor is co-investing in the deal directly or through some other entity, which you don't really have any transparency through. There's a couple of things where you can actually figure out what's going on without reading every single word of the 200-page document. Like I said, it's preferable that you do, but if that's going to take you six hours that you don't have, totally get it. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, most passive investors invest like minimum fifty to hundred thousand. That's a lot of money, right? I mean, it's a lot of money. Why? Why people are not taking the time to read the company agreement? And as I said, I've met a lot of people with five thousand units passive investment, you know, and they don't even read. I mean, they and some people are being sponsors, right? I mean, even they do not know their own structure, and I, I'm just mm-hmm. so puzzled with all these. And I think it's. Similar to what Howard Mark says, right? When market is super, super hot, I, you know, uh, everybody just throw money to the deal. You know? And Howard Marks explained very well. I mean, this is a FOMO effect, right? Fear of missing out, right? I mean, you see your neighbor getting rich because he has been investing on this deal and, oh, I should be able to invest. I mean, nobody really, not many people really understands the company agreement very well. And 
and uh, and I think it's important for sponsors to educate passive investors, right? And and that's why I'm doing all this educational aspect of whenever I, I talk to a passive investor, I say, did you read my book? At least do you know what's what are you investing on? Because as I said, when market is good, everybody's happy, everybody makes money, and we go home, right? But <laughs> when market goes bad. They, I mean, people are going to say, "Oh, why did you overraise and pay me my own money? Why, why are you, why are you paying a cash flow on a vacant land, right?" So, I mean, it doesn't sound right for me. I mean, it's, I don't know, I don't do the gray line things, right? I do, you know, either black or white. I mean, just easy, and we make it very straightforward. Everybody can sleep at night. Right? Totally. So, and I'll tell you this: going back to our original conversation, where mm-hmm. taking the more aggressive financing may appear appropriate early in your career, but once you start realizing what's possible if you are able to execute decade in and decade out for just a few hundred or maybe a thousand investors, it's very, very powerful. And then you start to see that long-term view. And then you realize what you just so eloquently said, which is that there should never be a position where you're in some kind of gray area where you don't know if someone's going to find out about this later down the road and realize that they didn't get a good deal. All that stuff should be eliminated from your business and set up your compensation structure and your employee compensation structure so that everyone's aligned with investors first receiving a return of capital and also getting a preferred return before anybody gets really wealthy. And if you do that, all of a sudden, all these problems tend to go away very quickly. So one of the really, really powerful things about real estate is that incentive alignment structure. So I'm transitioning. You wrote the book about passive investing. You are a sponsor. So your focus from a portfolio allocation standpoint surely is in your own deals. Now, do you passively invest in other people's deals or is the book really written for other people who are contemplating investing with you or other sponsors? No, I do. I do invest as passively as well on on not a lot of deals, but I did invest uh, on a passively as well, and I've invested as a as a KP as well. And so the, remember, we talked about I we own like seventeen hundred units. That is just what we are single GP on, right? So if I include all my passive investment, all my KPs, and you know that's going to be you know like almost like two thousand units. But I really don't use this marketing gimmick of you know right. saying big numbers of number of units and actually I say what I control because what. You control is what your experience is. When you control the whole thing, you have a lot of experience. When you are passive investors, you know you can use the number to trick other people, especially when you want to be a first-time uh, sponsor. But you mm-hmm. know, I don't do that. Yep, makes sense. Yep. What are some other than your own investment thesis, which is focused on multifamily in Texas in particular? What are some investing strategies that you find compelling in today's? marketplace? Primary strategy is just the operator, right? Who is the operator? Who is doing it? Uh, Because I'm operator myself and I can see a lot of deals and I can analyze very quickly whether this is a deal that makes sense. And sometimes I like to invest on location that I'm not able to invest because, you know, we are focused a lot on our backyard, which is Austin and San Antonio. And if I find an operator from Dallas and, and I like the operator and I trust him, and I see that's a good uh, location, I'll invest. That are the things I look for. I mean, it's very hard for passive investors to know the exact details of the deal. You have to really go by what the operator credibility is, right? And please, the best thing that I, even I mentioned in the book is to talk to another passive investors who have invested with that operator and ask him, is that person communicating? Is person doing what he says is he's supposed to do or not? I don't mind losing money on a deal where the operator really, really tried hard. He had all his ducks in a row. He planned it out well and things go beyond his control rather than um, putting money into a deal where the operator, you know, uh, scammed me, right? That's the worst part. I look for operators and they are credible. Very difficult to underwrite the risk of fraud 
for example. It makes all the other work that you've done into that point completely useless. And it's something that we need to avoid. And I agree that focusing the operator, and I actually like that answer that the operator is so important that the strategy is almost not anything compared to how important it is that the person that you're relying on is an ethical actor and that the incentive structures are set up to encourage their ethical behavior so that you're not relying on them to just be in a good mood for the next seven years while they complete the investment thesis. So very powerful stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things like, you know, investment structure, once they found out later, hey, you didn't tell me something, they're going to completely lose their trust, right? And things like Excel spreadsheet, yeah, you can manipulate numbers in many ways. I mean, uh, people do all kinds of sensitivity analysis and I can see the sensitive analysis, but it's very hard to do on a multiple variables. Mm. No, I really appreciate that and, and agree. It's something that as the industry matures, I think that we're going to see a lot of conversations like this come up again and again. And I'm very grateful to be able to be facilitating a lot of these conversations before they're absolutely required. And oh my gosh, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, very lucky to, to have the listeners that we have to engage in these types of conversations to protect and grow our capital together. So James, you know, this has been a great interview. I really enjoyed it. I'm very much looking forward to picking up your book as well. Let the listeners know how they can learn more about you, where they can get your book and how they can learn more about your firm. My website is achieveinvestmentgroup.com. Achieve is like achieving a goal, A-C-H-I-E-V-E. My email is james at achieveinvestmentgroup.com. You can come to my website and if you guys want to be in my list, there's a link called Invest With Us. You know, just register there. My Facebook group is called Multifamily Investors. It's 5,000 members right now after one year. And the reason why we have so many members uh, is because I give a lot of value to that group. That's one place where I'm very active on. If you're on LinkedIn, uh, I've also created a Multifamily Investors group in LinkedIn and you should be able to join there as well. Okay, excellent. So we will link to that in the show notes page. James, thanks so much for coming on. Awesome. Thank you, Hunter. Really happy to be here. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.